Three Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. special correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. Saying this week, an Arab Muslim named Hadi Matar, 24, attacked Rushdie during a presentation at the Western New York Literary Gathering, causing serious injuries. Although Rushdie reportedly is now able to speak and his family and agents say he is even making jokes. Matar has a dual American and Lebanese citizenship. Um, he's from the southern Lebanese village dominated region of Yar Hezbollah region dominated uh, of Yarun. Violence is never an answer to disagreement, no matter how intense those disagreements might be. Our first guest uh, today is going to be Norman Rule, who is a uh, 35 year veteran of the CIA. We're going to take a few calls from listeners uh, before that. And then afterwards, we're going to replay a uh, a segment I did with uh, Dennis Ross back in July. And let's go to the phone lines at 248-557-3300. So I don't know if we want to take calls, if you want to make a comment at 248-557-3300. Are you upset about the attack on Rushdie or do you feel that Rushdie insulted Islam? Like many of his critics said when the book came out in 1988, I read it. I have a copy of it here. And uh, it's uh, actually... Uh, you know, an interesting book, but it's a novel. It's all fiction. But I remember back in 1976 when uh, Mustafa Akkad, the Arab film producer and director, director. produced a movie the movie Muhammad, Messenger of God, which he had to retitle uh, to The Message and later to Prophecy, um, because many Muslims were upset that he made a movie about the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, that he talked about Islam. It was actually a very respectful movie at the time in 1976. One of the first movies that allowed uh, uh, Americans to really understand what Islam was all about. It really opened up some information. Rushdie's book, however, was a novel. It really wasn't intended to present Islam in a positive or negative way, but it played off of Islam. And it played off of many of the... Uh, uh, beliefs that many Muslims have. And I know it was very uh, controversial at the time. It was banned in India, where Salman Rushdie was from uh, originally. And then later, um, the Ayatollah Rouhili Khomeini in Iran, Iran issued a death fatwa against, uh, the, against uh, Rushdie. Give us a buzz at 248-557-3300. What did you think of the attack on Salman Rushdie. I know there's so many people that don't want to condemn the assailant, Adi Matar, because they're, they, they didn't really like Rushdie's book. And I understand it, but the violence, is it justified? Um, and there's been this silence in the Arab community. Um, you know, when things happen, we hear from everybody. But in this case, it was really kind of, uh, the silence is deafening. It was hard to get a response. Um, from uh, leaders of the uh, Muslim community to condemn uh, Hadi Matar or to even express any sympathy for Rushdie. The Iranian regime blamed everything on Rushdie and said that it's, you know, his fault, that they had nothing to do with it. But this uh, assailant um, clearly uh, was a big supporter of the Ayatollah Khomeini and uh, had his picture up on Facebook and supported him. So if you're out there, I mean, listen, if I were Shia Muslim, I'd want to explain to people what I feel about it. 248-557-3300 if you want to call in and uh, talk to us. And I know a lot of people are afraid to talk about this because they feel that if they say anything, they might expose themselves to criticism. 
um, they might be, uh, you know, something could happen to them the way it did Salman Rushdie. And we tried to get them on uh, to talk some uh, leaders in uh, New Jersey. I tried to get them. You know, what do they think? But it's like everybody's running from the story. What are they afraid of? I, I, I don't get it. Why? I, I hope it's not because they support violence. I, I hope that's not the case. And I don't believe that is the case. Um, but there is an extremist element out there. And, you know, as we saw with Rushdie, this death fatwa issued in 1989 by the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, that's 33 years ago. And still 33 years later, somebody attacks him. Um, and I, like I said, I read the book back in the early 19, the late 1980s, early 1990s. It's an interesting book. My opinion, I didn't feel that it insulted Islam. I don't believe that. It, it was a novel. It was fictional. Almost the imagination of Salman Rushdie, who's a great writer. I mean, he's a very good writer. Um, and he tells the tale of these two friends that are on a plane that uh, they were terrorists. They were going to blow up the plane. The plane explodes. They end up surviving. But one becomes an angel and one becomes a devil. And it goes through the uh, interchange between the two of those men, um, symbolizing the challenges, I guess, of any religion, not just Islam. It could have been about Christianity. It could have been about Judaism. Every religion has different uh, aspects um, regarding uh, what's important and what's not important. Our number is 248-557-3300 if you want to check in. Um, I'd love to hear what you have to say about the attack on Salman Rushdie. I mean, I, I can't believe anybody would say that he deserved it, but I'd like to hear from you. Did he, you know, did he insult Islam so badly that there's some basis for that death fatwa? I can't believe that. Um, it's one thing when he wrote a book, write against him, criticize him. He wrote something you don't like, you write something about him. Um, but to turn to violence is never the answer. Violence only takes the focus away from what the real issues are. Maybe there are issues about Salman Rushdie's book, the satanic, satanic verses. Uh, maybe there are issues that should be addressed. They can be addressed without turning to violence. For calling my name Olga. How are you? Good. Thank you for calling. So what do you, what do you think of this? How are you doing? I'm doing good. But... Yeah, I'm at work, but I like to. Uh, yesterday, I saw uh, in the night uh, about that uh, guy and how the somebody tried to kill him over the story of the book he wrote, and that upset me. Really upset me because this is not the way we deal with a human. Like we are brother and sister in this world. Like everybody, when we die, we're gonna go to see one God, one. Uh, it's it's only and, one inch, you know. And you're so Muslim. And you're Muslim. Why. You're Muslim, correct? I'm Christian. From uh, I'm Christian. oh, you're Christian. Okay. Are you surprised yeah, that you see it's you see all this violence like like these days? Even uh, sometimes I start hate to uh, to hold the phone or open the Facebook because you see stuff we never used to this. We never see this in our life. What's going on in this world? Why? Yeah. Why? Well, some some people get right? very some people get very angry. Listen, thank you so much for your call. Yeah. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, very nice of you to call. And they put the uh, negative stuff on their brain, and the result, he lost his young guy. He lost his now. He gonna for sure go for lifetime or this vanity or just God know what his punishment is going to be. And the guy just know if he's going to be survived or why. Yeah. I, I can't understand what's going on, really. All right. So, well, listen, we wish that they, they wake up and they uh, start going back to normal life and stop this violence. I hope they stop this violence. All right. Thank you for calling. Thank you so much for calling. Thank Our you, Mr. Hanania. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a great day. Bye -bye. Bye. All right. I'm Ray Hanania here at WNZK AM 690 uh, radio in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 in uh, Washington, D.C. And we'll rebroadcast in Chicago on Thursday at 12 noon. We'll take a break, uh, run our ads. And when we come back, hopefully we might be able to get this straightened out. Talk to you in a little bit. We'll be right back. 
right after these messages. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Testing one, two, three. Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from grandma's, singing Lila's favorite song. A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. So does Dylan. Testing one two three. Testing. Testing one two three. Testing. Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Ziad brand quality products from our family to yours Ziad brothers importing offers the finest quality products including brands like sultan craft nestle hook rico picon donna and many more ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best for more information visit our website at www.ziad.com that's www.ziad.com Ziad quality products from our family to yours and welcome back and to uh, WNZK AM 690 radio I am Ray Hannon well my guest is Norman T rule he served for 34 years in the CIA the echoes echoes oh okay good listen I think we got it straightened out we were having some real tough technical problems Mr rule and I apologize to you Norman Rule served 34 years in the CIA, managing significant programs relating to the Middle East. Mr. Rule's service in the CIA's Directorate of Operations included roles as Division Chief, Chief, Deputy Division Chief, and Chief of Station. It's such a pleasure to have you on uh, and joining us this uh, afternoon today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Uh, this is a great show, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to be, uh, to be on today. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, usually we don't have the radio verite problems that we do. But, you know, when you do live radio, anything could happen. And it's just that this this show is so important, though, because I thought it addresses so many important issues. In the first segment, I wanted to talk to listeners about um, why wasn't the Muslim, uh, the leadership of the Islamic community in the U.S.? Why didn't we hear from them so forcefully? And it seemed like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They may not like Rushdie's book, and at the same time, they may not like the violence, but they don't want to condemn the violence because they don't want to make it sound. I wonder if the Ayatollah is causing me these troubles, do you think? You guys have it? Yes, that might well be it. So, I mean, what, what was your reaction, first of all? I, I have a bunch of questions, but what was your reaction to what happened to Salman Rushdie? So, first, this was a horrific act, and I agree that there should have been more uh, statements, uh, uh, perhaps not only by, the, by some members of the Muslim community in the United States, but also members of Congress 
and uh, the ACLU and other voices uh, need to come out and uh, 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 oppose uh, this act of violence in the strongest terms. Again, we can all have our, our views on, uh, on his material and uh, nobody wants to be disrespectful uh, of Islam, but this is an act of terrorism. It needs to be uh, treated as such. Sorry again, uh, Mr. Rule. And the, the silence just is, it's almost a condemnation of the community. It's embarrassing, I think. We did have a, a caller earlier, you know, who said it was terrible what was happened. Um, she was Arab, uh, she was from Middle, Middle East, but she was Christian. But uh, we tried to get Muslims to speak out this and they they just didn't do it. You we you tweeted recently saying that the attack on Salman Rushdie by a pro Khomeini individual should amount to an act of terror. Why do you feel it should be categorized as an act of terror? Well, there's no question it 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 should be treated as an act of terrorism. It was uh, a, an act of violence that was meant to silence an individual because of his views. It was an act of violence that was meant to send a message in a public uh, location to uh, other people that uh, this uh, individual is being silenced for a specific reason, and therefore they themselves have to uh, act differently. And that's the purpose of terrorism. It is to 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 punish, it is to inflict violence, than it is to uh, compel others to follow a, a specific political line. And this has all the ingredients of what Iran and the regime in Iran hate about America. It reflects everything that they might be involved in. It's militias and Iran have a very strong, bad record with the United States from the, going all the way back to the hostage crisis, to the Beirut barracks attack, the Houthis official slogan is actually death to America, yet we seem to be tolerant with this. There's this campaign to, you know, negotiate with Iran. How do you negotiate with a country that says, hey, uh, even though they issued the fatwa back in 1989 um, and never recalled it, it's still a death fatwa that's out there against Salman Rushdie, an author, a writer who's not a violent person. Um, they never recalled it, but they seem to they blamed it on the United States. They blamed it on the author. Um, how Correct. do we how do we tolerate this in this country? How do we accept it? So we've we've chosen to handle terrorism very differently in recent years. Um, for example, when we had an act of terrorism against uh, U.S. personnel in uh, um, in Europe under Gaddafi, uh, Ronald Reagan took military action against Libya. When we had a threat against President George Bush by Iraq, uh, President Clinton at the time took action against uh, um, Iraq itself to stop this. We have had a series of Iranian actions, almost always involving uh, uh, other nationals beyond Iranian officials, because it allows Iran to conduct actions that are attributable to Iran, so it gets its message, but in a sense, deniable. And what the United States and also Europe have done, I think, is a, is a dangerous uh, uh, strategy. They're following a dangerous strategy. In essence, we pursue the local actor uh, uh, under law enforcement um, aspects, and then we make public statements um, ascribing the um, uh, action to Iran um, and, and threatening privately or publicly severe consequences if someone succeeds. In most cases, Iran's actions fail, but in essence, we, we're sending a message that they're swinging the bat um, at killing Americans, um, and we've had a number of attempts uh, by Iran um, uh, this year that have been frustrated per press reports, but we don't punish them for the effort, which in essence encourages them to continue to uh, try these actions, but also to put out propaganda um, on Twitter, which is uh, which continues to have the Supreme Leader's account and other places, which encourage people to undertake actions, in essence, that satisfy Iran's political goals. It, do you think it's clear? I, I just want to go back to the point uh, about Iran. Do you think they were, I mean, and again, I don't know, I, obviously, if there's any evidence out there that's solid, you know, that you could, you know, hold in your hand, but your gut feeling, do you think Iran was behind this directly? Are they responsible for what this guy, Hadi Matar, did? 
Well, certainly Iran is responsible for creating a worldwide uh, atmosphere, uh, propagating an atmosphere uh, uh, that encouraged this action. Uh, it not Iran not only put out a fatwa, which has been uh, reaffirmed, not, not, not recently and not often, but it has been reaffirmed, and Iran actually increased the amount of money in the pot it would pay for uh, um, uh, violence against Salm Salman Rushdie. And I understand um, that the um, uh, Supreme Leader's webpage may actually have a, um, a Q&A in which um, they ask, is the, um, is the fatwa still in, in place? And the answer was, re at least recently, yes, it's still in place. So Iran is responsible for creating this um, um, this this uh, this sense that this is a necessary action, and I think we've got something that is identical to what Al Qaeda did uh, with its worldwide propaganda campaign and in instigating other acts of violence. So maybe Al Qaeda didn't undertake the specific act, but actions were undertaken because people were informed on social media um, um, uh, by a specific line of propaganda. So it doesn't matter that that fatwa was issued 33 years ago. It was issued. It's never been repealed. And as you say, and I believe you're absolutely correct, it's still out there. The Iranians have basically said it's still there. They want to claim that, oh, we were never actively telling anybody to do it. But it would be like give it, the U.S. giving an order and tomorrow somebody did it. Instead of being one day, it's 33 years. Does that make any difference that it was 33 years ago that this order was given? Not at all. And in fact, uh, um, it, it even underscores that uh, when Iran makes a threat, uh, that threat may eventually be, be achieved over time. And there is a there is a lesson there that the United States and the international community should have dealt with this um, fatwa differently, should not have tolerated the fact that the fatwa remained in extent, should not have tolerated the fact that Iran did not uh, withdraw this. Uh, but we did, hoping that it would just sort of drift into obscurity, whereas there are plenty of people who follow the propaganda Iran puts in the social media, and they uh, and this individual acted accordingly. And of course, let's, uh, it's kind of ironic, the timing of all this. Um, just, I think, a couple weeks prior, there were threats of assassination targeting John Bolton, Pompeo. What, what do you make of that? And, and do you think Tehran, uh, Tehran agents could have actually been involved in it? What do we know so, about that? I, I think it's important that your listeners uh, go to the web and look for the charge sheet against the individual um, behind the uh, threat to John Bolton and others, and compare that to the charge sheet of the individual who was um, arrested and imprisoned for attempting to kill then Saudi ambassador to the United States, Adel Jaber. And you'll notice a very similar modus operandi in which someone from Iran finds a non-official, an Iranian who is comfortable living in the United States or moving the United States, um, and then uh, 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 pays that individual to conduct an act of uh, terrorism or assassination. And in each case, if you read it carefully, Iran was willing to employ a, a bomb, a weapon of mass destruction as something to be used from a distance that certainly would have killed other innocents as well. And it, it just seems that uh, um, th it creates this fear then, this... Uh, this concern that this could happen at any time doesn't the oh, time indeed. frame doesn't matter anymore right i mean there there there's this these incidents with bolton with uh Joubert, with pompeo uh with salman rushdie they tell us that this could happen at any time are and we also doing we have the actions against um the um um american the iranian american um um a dissident uh, masih uh, ali najad uh where on two occasions iranian actors attempted to uh kidnap her and take her out of the country and now we have another individual and uh, that case is still under investigation and, and that individual showed up at her door with a rifle so in essence what we've got is a situation where we punish individuals we capture under law enforcement we retell iran privately and publicly we will respond to the to a successful attack but failed attacks seem to provoke no response from not only the united states but also france and and european partners and i think this encourages um individuals in iran to to think there is no penalty for their efforts um uh to conduct terrorism in the united states and elsewhere 
mean, given the fact that the prior administration canceled the JCPOA with Iran um, and the current administration is seeking to revive it. Now, it's been a year of negotiations. And I remember six, I think it was like three months ago during the negotiations in Vienna, they were saying, if we don't get this done in a week, they'll have what it takes to build a bomb. So we better get it done quick. I didn't hear any more of that after that. But are Democrats more tolerant of Iran than the Republicans? And, and why is that? Why, why do you think if that's in fact true, why are they more tolerant? Well, I don't, I don't know if I would say Democrats are more tolerant, but I would say that this administration reflects the uh, posture of the second Obama administration, which is that if you solve the nuclear problem, you, um, uh, you, you make other problems easier to solve. Whereas if you don't solve the nuclear problem, those problems become harder. Now let's stick with that logic for a moment. And we need to ask, after the, the, the JCPOA was concluded, that deal was concluded in 2015, what did the international community do to push back on Iran's terrorism, its actions in the region, its, its, its human rights violation? And the answer is not much. So I think the question everybody should ask, and it's a reasonable question to put to people in the administration where I have friends, is to say, okay, if a deal is concluded tomorrow, Iran will have sanctions lifted, and this will resource the very organizations responsible for terrorism and other activity. What are you and other European partners going to do about it besides issue a diplomatic demarche? If we if we do cut a deal on the JCPOA with Iran, does that erase what happened? I mean, how do you turn away from what's been done, especially if there's a belief? And, and I find it hard not to believe that Iran... Um, isn't somehow directly complicit in this simply by virtue of the fact that the fatwa still exists and they said they haven't taken it down. And instead of condemning it, they've actually said, oh, it's their fault. They're responsible. Isn't it? I mean, it, I mean, is it unfair? Correct. And in fairness, that? the secretary of state has issued a statement where he has uh, pointed out to Iran's um, um, uh, fatwa and, and its actions. And in fairness, again, the administration, the Biden administration has repeatedly stated that um, it will pursue other actions um, um, to stop Iran's terrorism and role in the region. But in fairness, again, it hasn't provided a lot of details on this. And the failure of the international community to do this after 2015 uh, should cause people to reasonably question what the follow-up plan will be so the, the the u.s then it didn't seem like we really i know we took it seriously i know everybody condemned it everybody spoke out president biden spoke out the uh, uh by uh, anthony blinken spoke out um no the muslim community again and and i understand some of them being afraid to speak out um, it's a very difficult issue. They may not. I don't have to like Salman Rushdie's book. I can say it's the worst book in the world. I can't turn to violence, though, to express that feeling. I happen to like the book. I read it. I thought it was interesting. I took it on face value. It was a novel. Um, but there's, as you point out, there hasn't been any condemnation to the level that this deserves. There's a guy that actually was stabbed. He's going to lose an eye lose nerves and you know uh, in spite of the fact that he's been very positive in the hospital you know his uh, mental state has been very positive joking with people um he's suffering a very he's lucky to be alive how many he's times did this guy alive, but ray there's a bigger problem here that we need to consider and that is if iran continues to foster uh sponsor and undertake these sorts of activities at some point they're going to succeed now, if they're using the type of weapons, for example, that uh, an explosion in a restaurant, which was one of the um, ideas used to, to, to uh, they attempted to use to kill the then Saudi ambassador of the United States, I want you and your listeners to imagine how the U.S. would be forced to respond if Iran succeeds in a mass casualty attack in post 9-11 United States. We could literally have the conventional war thrust upon us that we all wish to avoid. So it, although certainly we want to, to, to respond to this terrible, horrific act of terrorism against Mr. Rushdie, we have to take action so that we don't find ourselves facing a successful Iranian operation and a war in the Middle East because we just stood by and allowed Iran to feel there is no deterrent to its actions. How do we trust Iran when they've taken the position they have regarding Salman Rushdie 
to live up to anything that they promised with the JCPOA, even if they signed. The JCPOA's premises, as I describe it, is distrust and verify, just as our agreements were with the Soviet Union on arms control. And the agreement is tightly constructed to provide deep international oversight of Iran's programs to allow us to see if they are building a covert or nuclear weapons facility. This said, many aspects of the agreement will expire within seven years. And at that point, it becomes more difficult to constrain Iran's ability to build a weapon. And also during that period of time, at any point, if Iran undertakes an action, we have to say what what tools are left to us besides military action. If we, for example, if we were to say no Iranian oil sales because they've conducted a terrible act of terrorism or a missile strikes a civilian facility in Saudi Arabia, does Iran then withdraw from the deal? Are we faced with a nuclear crisis? So we have to make sure the nuclear deal doesn't become a shield to the other actions we have to be able to undertake short of a military conflict in the Middle East because of Iran's own rogue nation behavior. So basically this JCPOA simply addresses the issue of nuclear weapons. We have to take Iran at its word. And um, we did that for many years, but they seem to continue with the evolution of building a bomb, even under the old JCPOA agreement that we backed out of under Trump. Um, How do we even, I I just don't see how this agreement has given what's happened with Rushdie, given these attacks, what is the point of trying to negotiate with Iran? Um, It sounds like they're going to build their bomb anyway. They're going to embrace violence anyway. Um, They'll do it in very sneaky ways. Um, We might uh, hold their feet to the fire in some ways, but they're going to find a way around it. This guy had a fear, a legitimate fear that one day Iran will build a nuclear weapon. The, The deals construct does allow unprecedented and very important oversight of all of the facilities we know about. And we believe we know about all of them, the facilities that are operational that are that would be involved in such a program. However, Iran withheld a massive archive that was the cookbook, sort of how to build a nuclear weapons program and how to build it quickly. That could have been perceived as a violation of the agreement. And that was not the deal. And Iran was not held accountable for that. But on everything else that Iran undertakes, we will have very few cards uh, to use short of military action if the deal becomes a shield for hard sanctions, diplomatic isolation, et cetera, et cetera, against Iran. And a first test of this is going to be, will the United States give Iranian President Raisi, one of the most bloody officials in Iran's history, a visa to attend the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, The Trump administration withheld those visas. There is a legal argument that we have a responsibility to do this. There's a legal argument we cannot do this. But if we allow Raisi to show up in New York after these terrorist attempts in the United States, it is difficult for me to understand why anyone in Iran would think that these actions come with consequences. So without signing the JCPOA, without uh, taking at least some responsibility or at least condemning the use of violence. They don't have to say they like Rushdie's book. They can still say it's the worst book in the world. Um, maybe they shouldn't allow Raisi to come to New York then is basically what you're saying. Well, it's not just the Rushdie issue. It's the attacks against uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Alinejad. It's the attacks against former U.S. officials. Um, it's the threats in that regard. It's a, it's a series of issues, as well as Iran's incredible human rights violations against its own people. They've had a campaign against Baha'is. They've had campaigns against uh, um, environmentalists, which is unique on the planet for its sort of crazy uh, oppression of, of environmentalists. Um, um, but this is a country that once uh, thought uh, the CIA was sending in trained squirrels uh, to um, um, uh, conduct espionage. Um, uh, but it, nonetheless, we have to send a message that Iran will face diplomatic isolation. And the test, first test we'll have is with the United Nations General Assembly in September. And do you think the president, in other words, should say, no, he can't come into the country? Because I, I know that there's a diplomatic issue here, that the UN was set up with the understanding that every member country should be allowed to come in. But member countries that are involved in violence and terrorism, doesn't that create a situation where they might be subject to uh, restrictions and restraint and being banned from coming to the UN? So we've allowed some fairly unusual and dangerous people to come to the United States. Fidel Castro, for example. 
We've allowed some, our previous Iranian leaders to come to the United States. But your problem becomes, if you say reasonably that Iran fears most international, economic, and diplomatic isolation, and you take that as a premise because it's correct, you then have to be willing to act on that. And if you start carving out exceptions, um, the Iranian president can come to any UN issue. The Iranians can speak to the Council on Foreign Relations. The Iranians can meet European foreign ministers. Then what exact diplomatic isolation do they fear? And if you take that away, you start saying, I have very few tools left to constrain Iran. And if Iran believes it faces no constraints, its acts of terrorism will increase. And that moves us closer to a war. But you're not saying block you personally. You're not saying he should be blocked. I'm saying, saying that personally. You pardon me. I'm what? saying that personally, and that I, he should I, be blocked. That he should I, be. Blocked. It should be, but I can. But there will be a legal argument. I'm sure within the Department of State saying that that is not. You know, we're not but, supposed to do that. But I think because of the actions against the United States at this very sensitive time, that we need to send a message to the Iranian government that this will not be tolerated. And that would be one strong message to say you cannot come to the UN. And it also sends a message to other adversaries in rogue states that there is a consequence to actions. And if you undertake these sorts of actions, this is how you will you will you will you will you will have to endure diplomatic isolation. If Raisi comes to the United States, it sends the reverse message. It sends a message that you can conduct these sorts of actions. You'll get a statement by the State Department spokesman, maybe a tweet from a US official, maybe a sanction against an organization that has no financial assets that, uh, in the United States. But otherwise, you're pretty, it's pretty much cost free. I think we really want to avoid that. And you know, a, a final question, and, uh, and again, uh, my guess, just for our listeners out there and uh, and I, I, pre, I just want to say some good words about the staff at the radio station. When a problem goes wrong, they are on top of it. We did have some problems in the beginning. I'm so glad that they managed to get everything together for this because our guest, Norman Rule, a, uh, thir who served 34 years in the CIA managing significant programs relating to the Middle East, was able to join us and help us understand these issues. I think the question I have, the last one is, if this had been attributed to Al-Qaeda, do you think we would be acting the way we are with this Hattie Matar and with Iran if this had been an Al-Qaeda re related attack against the person, an American, uh, uh, somebody here in the United States? Well, let's just go back a handful of years. Whenever we thought we had an, a heightened risk of an Al-Qaeda attack in the United States, we had a stoplight, remember that, red, green. So now if you believe that there is such a threat by an Iranian attack that you have to have overt, overt police presence in front of former officials' homes, what does that say? How should we be acting? And why are we acting differently? And I think at the same time, we would have a robust program to punish and deter Al-Qaeda from undertaking these operations. I don't know that that program is underway now. It certainly doesn't appear to be underway with Europe. And then uh, back to the question about Raisi coming to the UN, uh, this would be interesting. We were talking in the sense of we could stop him, but why not go to the UN and say the UN should speak out forcefully as a group? I mean, obviously it may not happen because as you pointed out so correctly, there's been silence across the world about what happened to Rushdie. And it, it's not about Rushdie per se, but it's about the symbolism of what it represents. It's a campaign of violence throughout the world by throughout the world by Iran. There have been actions in Argentina recently. There are missiles fired, Iranian missiles fired from Yemen against the international population of Saudi Arabia. One other aspect that could happen is when President Raisi speaks, uh, representatives from those countries who are partners and allies could walk out of the room. That has been done also in the past. So if he if if the U.S. does, and I think your recommendation is pretty strong and powerful but if they don't take it and they allow him into the country there should be some at least some statement against what happened correct absolutely and it's, it's not just allow them to get away with this cost-free or it encourages further violence all right uh my guest uh norman rule nor uh, miss rule you've been so uh uh courteous and and to tolerate the few little technical gaffes that we had in the very beginning i so appreciate it i hope i can get you to join us again on radio um and to talk about this and other issues um and i wanted to point out my dad when he he came to this country in 1926 when pearl arbor struck 
he and his brother Moses, they went to the military, they enlisted. Uh, my dad was a lawyer and a, a business accountant. He was immediately recruited by the OSS and worked with the OSS to defeat the Nazis during World War II. Um, and he was Palestinian. And even though he had these issues with what was happening in Palestine, he was firm and standing up. We have to destroy the Nazis. And uh, obviously what he did at the OSS, I think it was the precursor of the CIA. It was. God bless your family and, and you. It's been an honor appearing today on, on, on a show that has such, such a, a great reputation and respect. And you ask very good questions. Thank you very much. Norman, thank you so much. Norman Rule, my guest, uh, 35 years with the CIA, talking about this terrible attack against Salman Rushdie, an author, uh, this past week. And uh, um, we're here at the end of the show. I want to apologize to everybody for the technical gaffes during the first segment. We weren't able to get our first guest on. I had hoped we could get a Shia leader from Dearborn to speak about how the community was reacting to this. Um, but unfortunately, we were not able to get him. But we did have this great guest, Norman Rule. Thank you so much, Norman. All right, I'm Ray Hanania here at WNZK AM 690 uh, Radio in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 in uh, Washington, D.C. And we'll rebroadcast in Chicago on Thursday at 12 noon. We'll take a break, uh, run our ads, and when we come back, hopefully we might be able to get this straightened out. Talk to you in a little bit. We'll be right back right after these messages. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Testing one, two, three. Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from grandma's, singing Lila's favorite song. A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. So does Dylan. Testing one two three. Testing. Testing one two three. Testing. Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Ziad brand quality products from our family to yours Ziad brothers importing offers the finest quality products including brands like sultan craft nestle hook rico picon donna and many more ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best for more information visit our website at www.ziad.com that's www.ziad.com <laughs> And uh, now we're going to do a rebroadcast of an interview I did with Dennis Ross uh, back on July 13th. I hope you enjoy this interview. With me today is Ambassador Dennis Ross, the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He served two years as Special Assistant to President Obama and National Security Council Senior Director for the Central Region and a year as Special Advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. For more than 12 years, Ambassador Ross played a leading role in shaping U.S. involvement in the Middle East peace process, serving as the U.S. point man on the peace process in both the administrations of former President George H.W. Bush and President, uh, former President Bill Clinton. 
Um, good morning, uh, Dennis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to be with you. Thank you. So uh, President Biden is facing some criticism at home for his, his visit to Saudi Arabia, despite that the trip is in U.S. interest. Do you think he did the wrong thing when he overpromised during his campaign to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state? Look, every American president, when he runs in a campaign, tends to make statements that seem to respond to the needs of the moment. There were plenty of presidents I worked for uh, that were mindful of what they said in campaigns, and then they faced the reality of decisions and choices they had to make. So what you say in a campaign may at times limit what you can do, but ultimately presidents make hard decisions, they face dilemmas, uh, he's made a decision to go to Saudi Arabia because he understood that this is something that's important to the United States right now. And I would say not just right now. I would say we're in a competition with Russia and China over what the shape of the international system is going to look like. What are the rules of the game? What's going to shape uh, the norms? Uh, and if Russia and China are the ones defining that, then you're going to see spheres of influence where little big nations can dictate to little nations what they can do. Borders can be changed by force. Making sure that's not the way the world's going to look is not just in our interests, it also is in our values. So the trip to Saudi Arabia is important because the Saudis need to be part of this broader coalition. They need to be part of a, a, the, an American partner as we try to transition away from fossil fuels. It's going to take a couple of decades. If we don't want to see lurches where suddenly the price of oil and gasoline goes up dramatically, we need to have a set of understandings with the Saudis. Again, this is important to us. Uh, and I think he realizes that and that's why he's making the trip. Yeah. And in that same way, I think you're, you're correct. President Biden wouldn't be visiting if he, didn't, if he didn't think he couldn't achieve America's interests and needs. What do you think the visit will achieve for America, in your opinion? I think it's going to achieve several things. I think it's going to reestablish uh, the U.S.-Saudi relationship and really a relationship of partnership. I think it's important to reestablish that. I think there were, look, there were tensions on both sides. It wasn't just on one side, it was on both sides. But I think this, the relationship is going to be put back on a solid footing, and that's critical. Look, I think we're going to see agreements emerge uh, on 5G and telecommunications. I think we're going to see agreements emerge on the future of green energy. Uh, this is uh, very much in America's interest, but it's also very much in Saudi interest. Uh, I think we will see agreements in the security defense area. I think we're going to see much more integrated approach to security in the region. From a Saudi standpoint, that has the benefit of embedding the U.S. more in the region. The more you see greater integration of air, early warning, missile defense, the more that's the case, it means the more the U.S. is embedded under the umbrella of Central Command. But it's also from America's interest because the more there is integration where the countries in the region are sharing with each other, not just with the United States, the more that shares the burden. So our role, which is going to be more embedded in the region, is also more sustainable as a result. So this is a relationship that meets the needs of both sides. I think we're going to see that emerge from this trip. And I, I know that the establishment has been very critical. Do you think they, they got it wrong? I mean, there's a lot of talk about interest versus values. But the U.S. actually has better relations sometimes with countries that are, quote, unquote, worse. Saudi Arabia is actually working on some reforms, including religious tolerance and, you know, women's rights. Uh, how, do, how does that relate to the way it's being portrayed in the, in the West and the U.S.? I think the, the reality of, uh, of what is going on within Saudi Arabia, the social liberalization, the, uh, the economic transformation, uh, the inclusion of women precisely because you couldn't modernize if you didn't include women. All of this has somehow been underappreciated. There's no doubt that the killing of Khashoggi was a, was a terrible thing. Uh, and it drowned out everything else that is going on. Uh, now, you know, look, there shouldn't have been a pass given for it, but there also has to be a perspective. Saudi Arabia 
is transforming itself in a way that addresses the needs, not just of Saudi Arabia, but it, it may be creating a model uh, in a region that at least among the Arabs has never had a successful model of development. That's hugely in our interest. The reason there's been, the reason we've seen so much turmoil and conflict is precisely because extremists on both ends, whether they were radical nationalists or they were radical Islamists, they said, we have the answer for the, the failure of these states to advance. Uh, and they didn't by definition. And here is a new model, at least for a larger state. Some of the smaller states obviously have been effective, but their populations are very small. Here you have a larger Arab state that is undertaking a fundamental approach to modernization. And if it succeeds in that, it sends a message to the rest of the region that there's a different way. And you put your finger on something. There's been a promotion of, region, of religious tolerance. We had Muhammad Al-Isa give the sermon uh, for the Eid. Here is someone who made a trip to Auschwitz, who is emphasized entirely respect for other faiths and promoting uh, inter-religious dialogues. Now, some clearly attacked him uh, because of what he represents and what he stands for. And he was the one asked by the crown prince to give this sermon. It speaks volumes about the changes that are taking place uh, in Saudi Arabia. And so, yes, I think, I hope this, this visit and some of what's likely to emerge from the visit in terms of agreements in the high-tech area, in the area of renewable energy, uh, I hope some of this will shine a spotlight on changes that are taking place within Saudi Arabia that have received far little attention, far less attention than it should have. And I know that uh, just as a follow-up to that, I know that you know in every country where change is brought, even uh, in the U.S. when we pursued civil rights, it didn't happen overnight. It's a process, correct? I mean, it take it takes step after step. It's a process, and as long as it's moving in that forward direction, it's a good thing, I think. Think about it. You can't transform any society culturally, politically, socially. It's not a light switch where you flip it and suddenly it's changed. By definition, it has to be a process. You're dealing with human endeavors. This is a, a you have generational change taking place and it takes time to create different kinds of habits and different kinds of norms. Uh, but what we're seeing is a transformation that is pretty remarkable in terms of the, the speed. I will say, look, I've been coming to Saudi Arabia since 1991. I wrote an article actually in the Washington Post when I went there in 2016. And I said, this is a different country than I've been coming to. And it's because what you see outwardly, it's completely different uh, in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm struck by, tell people, I'm struck by the, by the fact that there's a place in, in Riyadh called Uwak. And when you walk down uh, that promenade, you see large numbers of Saudis walking and you're walking next to restaurants and shops and so forth. And you go into the cafes of the restaurants and women will be the maitre d's, they'll be servers. There's a complete mixing uh, of, of, the, of men and women. Uh, you know, I, I saw one woman, I saw two women, I call this kind of the emblem of the new Saudi Arabia. I saw two women walking arm in arm. One woman completely covered. Veil, the only th thing you saw were her eyes, walking arm in arm with a woman completely westernized. Uh, no head covering, no scarf, her hair actually dyed so you could, so it stood out. They're walking arm in arm. Why was that significant? Because it showed they were comfortable with each other. For me, that's an extraordinary statement. And so, yes, I, I see a very different Saudi Arabia and I see uh, look, every country has its warts. And are there issues? Yes, there are issues. And we should raise them. But a relationship is a two-way street. 
and this visit of President Biden is an opportunity to put the relationship back on the right footing uh, and to realize that we have common stakes with each other. Uh, this is a relationship that reflects the needs and interests of both sides. And I am confident that uh, the result of this trip is we're going to be able to pursue those needs and interests much more effectively now. And, and even though the focus hasn't been on this part, the initial part of the trip, I think, might be the toughest part. This idea that uh, uh, can Saudi Arabia, for example, help achieve peace uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians uh, to bring peace for the Palestinians and resolve this conflict once and for all? Is that possible? Well, I do think it is possible. I think we're at a very low ebb between Israelis and Palestinians because of the complete disbelief on both sides. And honestly, the, the political realities on both sides, um, because the publics have become completely disbelieving of the other, the political context is obviously a negative one. And in the case of the Palestinians, there's a complete division between Hamas and Fatah, between the West Bank and Gaza, they're in no position, even if you had a left-wing Israeli government, you don't have any capability on the Palestinian side to negotiate an outcome. First thing that has to be done is to restore belief in the sense of possibility. There's a lot that can be done from the ground up. But here's where Arab outreach to Israel actually becomes a very useful uh, element in terms of changing the equation. We have a complete stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians, but we have a new element in the equation, which is the Abraham Accords on one hand, the normalization process. Arab states see not just the security benefits of the relationship with Israel, but they're looking at a need for water security, food security, health security, cybersecurity. Israel is cutting edge in all of these technologies. It's a world leader in all of these technologies. Arab states are not Arab leaders are not going to deny themselves what's in their interests because the Palestinians, they perceive the Palestinian leadership not being able to move. But having said that, Arab state outreach to Israel can also be used to get Israeli moves towards the Palestinians. When the, when the Emirates made the decision to fully normalize, they came to the, to the Trump administration and said, we'll fully normalize, but the price is Israel doesn't annex the territory allotted to it under the Trump peace plan. So they, recreated, they created a kind of reverse linkage. The Palestinians have wanted, okay, no normalization until after end of occupation. But Arab states are not prepared to deny themselves what's in their interest. But they can use the relationship to say, okay, we'll make this move, but we want to see you take the following step. In the UAE case, they did something that prevented annexation. They prevented a negative. But Arab states can actually ask for a positive. Say, okay, look, we're taking this step towards you. Here's what we'd like to see you do towards the Palestinians. That's a way to, to break the stalemate. I'll give you two examples, so I won't just keep this abstract. <clears throat> one is a political example. One is a functional example that has political consequence. If the Saudis were to open a commercial trade office in Tel Aviv, it fits with what they want in terms of Vision 2030 and the National Transformation Plan. Israel is a, is a startup nation. You know, all these high-tech companies can easily been, begin doing business with Saudi Arabia. Now, what would be the political equivalent of that? It's not full normalization, but it's a politically significant, psychologically significant move. What would be the political equivalent of that? Israel stops building to the east of the security barrier, meaning they don't build a 92% uh, of the West Bank. That would be, it doesn't produce two states, but it preserves two states as an option. Okay, let's take a functional example. What if, the Pal what if the Saudis were to invest in water infrastructure in the West Bank? There's an acute water need in the West Bank. This could be felt by every single Palestinian. It couldn't be done except by coordinating very directly and in the open with the Israelis. Palestinians benefit, but it also feeds this process of direct uh, Saudi-Israeli contact. Here are two examples of how outreach to the Israelis could actually be of significant benefit to the Palestinians. And it's the way you break the stalemate. If we keep the focus exclusively on the Israelis and the Palestinians, they're both constrained to do anything. But if you bring in this new element, you can actually break the stalemate, transform the circumstance so that what isn't possible between the two of them today can become possible over time. 
So that's why, yes, in answer to your question, I think we need to take advantage of what are these new possibilities in the region, which I see as being very hopeful. All right, Ambassador, thank you so much. Our, our guest, Ambassador Dennis Ross, the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a Middle East advisor for many years for many presidents from Obama to George H.W. Bush and from uh, for President uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Ambassador, again, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. All right. One second.